The word of the Lord. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Riley, he said, I opened the front door and all the furniture was missing. There's a handwritten note on the kitchen counter and a bottle of wine. That's how my friend found out that his wife had left him. He'd been on a two-week-long uh, a business trip traveling the country, representing the school uh, that he worked for, and everything had seemed fine when he left. They had had their arguments, they had had their squabbles, but he had no idea what was going on beneath the surface. And as he got home and he opened the door, all he could see was an endless expanse of cheap, tan, wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. That's all she had left him. She had taken everything. She had drained their bank accounts. She had divorce papers already ready to be served. She had been planning this for months. He tried to reach out to her, tried to argue. We could get counseling. We could see a mediator. We could at least have a conversation, but she wasn't willing to talk. For her, the marriage was long since done. And that left my friend, my brother, not only with an empty house, but with an empty chasm in his soul, empty and ready to be filled with pain. What my friend had entered into and what lay ahead for him at that moment were some very, very rough waters in this life. She left him a bottle of wine. We go through rough waters in this life. There's no stopping that. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, the rough waters are going to come and sometimes they're going to be so overwhelming you will be convinced you cannot make it one more day. You will be so at the end of your rope. You are ready to give up, ready to throw in the towel, ready to go home and be with Jesus. You're exhausted. Rough waters. We're going to look at one of Jesus' signs, the term for miracles in the Gospel according to St. John. We're going to look at one in which Jesus speaks into the rough waters symbolically in this life. We're going to read John chapter 6. I'll read beginning in verse 15. This is the word of our Lord. Jesus, knowing that they, that is the crowd, intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. But now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing. 
the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were terrified. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were willing to take Him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. What do we see here? What is this sign reenacting? What is it trying to communicate to us? First of all, what we're reading about here is that this life is a journey through very rough waters. Everyone's on a journey. Every one of Jesus' miracles has a point. He calls them signs because they're pointing to something about Him and how He relates to us in our context. Contextually, Jesus has has just fed the 5,000, bringing this comparison to the manna that God gave to the Israelites during their their exodus from from Egypt and their time through the wilderness, drawing our attention back to that, that journey that Israel went through the wilderness to the promised land. They were on their way to Jordan's stormy banks to cross over into Canaan. And that's a picture of our life as the people of God, a people who are on pilgrimage, a people who are on a journey, a people who are heading home to the promised land with our Savior Jesus. We're we're going from the beginning of this life until that time when we cross the Jordan into the hereafter. The Bible describes us as a people who are pilgrims in this land, who are aliens and strangers in a strange land. We are sojourners. We are exiles in Babylon. We are pilgrims. We are on a journey like Abraham's journey from Ur of the Chaldeans to to Canaan, knowing not what was in store for him except that God was promising blessing. The Israelites' journey through Egypt to the promised land. The exiles' journey from Babylon home to Israel. The pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem every year for the three great high holy days, for the Passover, for the weeks, for the Feast of Booths, those psalms of ascent in the Psalter where where the songs are of pilgrims journeying toward the temple of God, singing songs of pilgrimage like Psalm 122. I rejoice when they said to me, come let us go up to the house of the Lord. It's, It's a picture of our lives. Psalm 84, how blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways of Zion, not the freeways like L.A., no, the highways of pilgrimage to go see the face of the Lord. In Hebrews 11, the author to Hebrews, we don't know who it was, an apostle likely wrote this sermonic thing appealing to Jewish Christians, probably specifically, who were so tempted to turn back to Jerusalem. And he was telling them, you're pilgrims. You're on a journey. Don't get distracted from your journey. And he points to all of these great saints throughout history who have faithfully kept on the journey through the rough and choppy waters, through the darkness to see the Lord. None of them saw it in this life, but he says all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them from afar, welcoming them from a distance and having confessed that they were aliens and strangers on this earth were just passing through, but as it is, they desire a better country that is 
a heavenly one. Friends, there's a direction to this life. Don't let anybody who, who has a kind of uh, sham, phony sophistication tell you that this life is meaningless. Don't let anybody tell you that it's absurd. We live in a life filled with choppy waters and darkness. There's plenty of meaningless. There's plenty of absurdity because it's a fallen world. But the Lord has called you, Christian, onto a journey in which every single moment of suffering is infused with absolute meaning and significance because it's a calling from our God who loves us. There is a direction to this life, a journey. It's like in the medieval era when there would be pilgrimages to to Santiago de Compostela up in the far northwestern corner of the Iberian Peninsula. It was the uh, Santiago, uh, St. James. It's where his body was purportedly uh, 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 kept uh, as a relic, um, not how I want to go. Um, but, uh, you know, it would be all about the journey. It wasn't just about getting to Santiago de Compostela. It was about the journey of walking through Germany, through France, through through northern Iberia, the northern coast of Spain, to reach Santiago de Compostela. It was about the journey, which is this life, which is our calling, which is infused with meaning. Think Canterbury Tales. We're pilgrims on a pilgrimage, a journey together, and yet it's not an easy journey. It is pictured here symbolically within this event that historically happened as darkness and waves. They are on the sea in a boat. And in the ancient world, the sea had tremendous uh, symbolic significance. The Babylonian god Tiamat, god of the salt sea, was symbolic of, of chaos, primordial chaos. Uh, and, and, and unpredictability. The Israelites, remember, they were not a seafaring people. Israelites didn't. They, they didn't get into shipping. That was the Phoenicians. That was further north up the coast. The Israelites were terrified of water because when you're an Israelite and you're in a ship in the middle of the sea, it doesn't matter if you're a half mile from the coast or 100 miles from the coast. Ten feet in any direction is certain death. You know, there's just, it's, and then, and then they had, they didn't have, you know, the little weather.com app. They didn't have, you know, AccuWeather, which is accurate. And all they had was you can look out. And, uh, but the thing is, on the Sea of Galilee, that doesn't help you. Uh, because the Sea of Galilee, the storms were not caused by fronts coming in. We'll get to that later. But in the Bible, the sea often represents chaos and disorder, a disorder and a chaos that only God can still. Psalm 65, the Lord Yahweh is the one who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nation. In the book of Revelation, weird little passage in the book of Revelation, which is this like symbolic picture of this present era between Christ's first and and second coming, symbolized through seven cycles, arguably. Um, But there's a point where it pictures the coming age when everything will be made right and it says and there will be no sea and you think well that really stinks i love the ocean i love the beach i mean i just got back from malibu you know it was 70 degrees there and i was 17 when we landed it was horrible uh, but it was great there because the sea is nice uh, but it's, it's speaking symbolically. It's not saying there won't be a sea in the coming age. It's saying there will not be chaos. Tiamat will not be unleashed. Uh, uh, there, there will be no more disorder, no more chaos, no more unpredictability, no more death and, and disaster seemingly waiting, crouching around every corner. 
and and realize they're in a very difficult spot. They have, it says, rode three and a half miles across. Now, this is a five or six mile wide sea, so they are literally in the middle of the chaos. And the way the Sea of Galilee was, was shaped, it was 600 degrees below sea level, and that's, so it's way down there. And it's a bowl-shaped uh, basin surrounded by hills, mountains on every side. And what happens is in good weather, all of the heat comes and just pools on top of it. And you get these nice warm air that keeps the, the, the sea smooth as glass. And yet then winds can come in from the east, from the desert. Cold winds that come over top of that. And they lift all of that hot air away. And the temperature drop causes a, a huge change in, in, in the barometric pressure. And so the wind and the waves can then start going up 10, 20 feet high and crashing. And, and in no time, with no warning, you can be in a very perilous situation. Not only are they in the midst of the waves, they're in the midst of the darkness. In verse 17, D.A. Carson uh, argues that, that, that when it says it was dark and Jesus hadn't joined them, that that's probably not just literally true, but symbolically as well. You think of what it's like in darkness, uh, absolute darkness. I, I was raised in an urban area, northern Virginia suburbs of D.C., and I don't think I had ever experienced darkness until about 1991 when I was driving for the first time in the middle of nowhere, which, believe it or not, if you get like 20 or 30 miles outside of a city, they don't have lights on the streets. And if it's dark, and it's cloudy, and it's raining, all you've got are your own reflections coming back and hitting you right in the eyes. And I remember it was a stormy night. I was driving home from, from Charlottesville, and this huge storm came up. It was pitch black. I couldn't see. I was, seemed to be the only car on the road. I could see nothing. There were no, no moon, no stars, no nothing. Windy road. I am freaking out. I know I'm going to die. I'm going down to like 15 miles an hour, barely creeping through, unable to see the road in front of me. And I am terrified because it is absolute darkness something we almost never experienced today. And it was only the fact that I came upon another car up ahead of me that had lights, that I was able to follow its lights around each and every turn to get home to safety. It's darkness. Think of what that's like when we, we have no control over our stories in this life. All of the knowledge that we don't have because it's shrouded in darkness. All of the people who are thinking thoughts independently, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, thinking things sometimes about you, saying things about you, and you don't know that they're saying it, and you don't know what they're thinking, and you don't know what your spouse is thinking, you don't know what your employer is thinking, you don't know what conversations are being had around you or behind your back, you don't know what the future holds, you don't know how your kids are going to turn out, you don't know what's going to happen with your career, with your family, with your relationships, you don't know if you're going to die alone in, in a home somewhere, or if you're going to be surrounded by family and people who love you. All of the questions that we don't have answers to concerning our business, our health, the future, things that we cannot control. It's darkness. You can't see. There's spiritual realities about us that we cannot visibly see very often with the naked eye. We don't know what the future holds. We can't see around a corner. We don't know what's in store for ourselves. It's so the point of, of darkness is that we don't know everything. Some of you, that drives you nuts, and so you're constantly asking questions, trying to get your bearings, trying to know what everybody else is thinking. So you, so, but it, it doesn't work that way. It's darkness. 
And it's rough waters with waves coming and crashing 20 feet up, taking your, your boat and throwing it up in the air and then bringing it down, getting battered. Some of you, you feel like you're battered by one wave after another. And no sooner do you start to get up from one wave than another comes and just bashes you to the side. I remember in Nicaragua, particularly rough waters, and I was trying to get to the beach. And it was fine until about 30 feet from the beach. And that's where every single wave was crashing, one against another. It's a surfer's paradise, not so much a swimmer's. And, uh, and I just remember once, finally, I got completely knocked down into sand and gravel. And I was just barely getting up. And as I got up, I looked, and there was a wave, like eight feet over top of me, this close to me. And all I could do is let it crash right into me. That's what they're experiencing. And that's what this life is like. I remember a boat ride once where it was what's called a water taxi. And I should have known because it was three of us American men getting on and the driver looked like he was about 17 years old and maybe had something to prove but um, the Caribbean is not always placid and he managed to jump every single wave he could I was like a two-liter coke bottle getting shaken up that entire trip it was disgusting you don't want to know the details rough waters that's what this life is you're gonna pass through rough waters in this life and these men on the boat they're doing what any of us would do. They are rowing frantically, it says. They are trying to power through the waves. The waves are coming. The wind is going. They're just keeping at it, powering through. We've got to do this. It's the fight of our life. Jesus says, you're going to face many hardships in this life. If Jesus got battered by the waves, don't think you're going to get better. He said, the servant's not above the master. If they persecuted the master, then you know what's coming for you. Jesus said the Christian life is like picking up your cross every single day and carrying it. That's a, a means of execution. Jesus is saying the normal life of following me looks like strapping yourself down into the electric chair, reaching over, turning on the power, letting it surge through you and destroy you and getting up tomorrow and doing it again and then again and then again. You will face rough waters in this life because the life we live in, history is discontinuous. The world we live in is not the world as God designed it originally in the beginning. It's broken. It's fallen. Our health has been affected. Our, our lives, our relationships, everything is so much less than it was intended to be. Our existence is, is so fractured. You're going to face so many hardships in this life. They're, they're rough waters. And we... We work constantly to brace ourselves against the waves. Um, we take every dietary supplement known to humanity. We've got teams of physicians of varied specialties, vitamins, minerals, balanced diet, going on so many diets. We work out at gyms. We run. We go jogging. We do Pilates and yoga. We do all these forms of exercise, and we insure everything. We buy insurance on our, our, our cars, we buy insurance on our houses, we buy insurance on our health, we buy insurance on our homes, we buy uh, insurance on our belongings, we buy insurance against floods or earthquakes or whatever it might be, we buy insurance against dying, which is kind of silly because you're never going to benefit from it yourself. It's just the people that you argue with your entire life will have a reason to, to, to have some comfort when you're gone. You know, and insurance companies buy insurance. That's what reinsurance is. 
Who insures the reinsurance companies? I don't understand it, but we're constantly trying to get a break against the wave to protect ourselves. We put aside money and we call them securities as if they're going to give us security. And, we, and yet the death rate is still 100%. These are rough waters, friends. There's no avoiding them. We have no control, only an illusion of it. We're going to pass through rough waters. Uh, some of you know what it's like living life as a single person into adulthood. Those are some really rough waters. Some of you know what it's like to, to be dating, and those are some really rough waters. And some of you know what it's like to be engaged, and those are some really rough waters. Some of you are figuring out how to stay married, and that can be some really rough waters. And parents... Rough waters. I remember sitting with a friend uh, who had just lost his job that afternoon. He was aspiring in a career. He was doing great. He was getting ahead. Definitely had leadership potential. Like, could tell he was the guy who was going to move up. And yet the economy was shaky and the industry was kind of shaky. And he remembers one afternoon he's called in. Everybody's called into the office. Uh, we're closing the company effective immediately. You're probably not going to get another paycheck. And I remember sitting with him that night. What do you do? The rug has just been pulled out from underneath you. Did not see that wave coming. That wave hit hard. And what can you do? You know, you don't know if you're going to get a paycheck. You don't know how you're going to pay the bills. You're, you're sizing up what you have in savings, what you have that you might be able to sell. You're activating your social network. You're trying to build bridges that you burned before the last job. You're making phone calls. You're checking financial statements. You're reaching out to parents to see if they can help. But the trajectory of your life has just changed irreversibly. And you will never get back to the exact place where you just were because that is no longer there. It's hard having no control, passing through rough waters in the darkness. Uh, think of the heartbreak of a parent whose adult children have rejected her where she spends her entire life, all of these years, pouring energy into her children only to see things turn out so differently than she'd ever dreamed, not knowing whether to reach out to her children again one more time to try, knowing that they're going to experience that as manipulation or control because of all the water that's under the bridge, knowing there's little she can do to fix it except to pray. They're rough waters. I remember visiting my grandpa in a psych ward after watching his dementia progress and had gotten very severe, he had begun hallucinating, Louis body dementia. He was hallucinating and he had attacked my grandmother during a hallucination and he was in the psych ward and I remember how pathetic it was and he didn't even know where he was. He thought I was his roommate. He thought he was walking down the street when it was a hospital corridor. It's not what anybody would want in this life and yet we're going to pass through rough waters. I remember crouching beside a hospital bed, holding a little boy, a little boy that, that didn't make it. I remember mom in the hospital bed, covers over her dad, sitting next to her on the edge of the bed. Um, nothing I could do to fix the situation, just to be there. And I, I thought, how, how hard, what could be worse than than, than losing your child, the unimaginable loss. There, there are not rougher waters in this life through which anyone could ever be called to pass. Some of you know what it's like to watch someone that was so filled with life 
and energy, spunky and energetic life of the party, much love when they begin going through treatment and they lose their hair. And it's one session after another, first the chemotherapy, then the radiation. You watch as they're losing weight, they're getting lighter, they're getting weaker. It's so hard, and, and sometimes they don't make it, and, 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 and you can't predict the outcome, and yet it's a journey that all of us likely will go through at some point. The rough waters. And friends, when you pass through the rough waters of this life, there's something that you need. You need Jesus on the boat with you. Jesus is the only one who can get you through the rough waters. Look at the passage. When Jesus shows up, for one thing, when Jesus shows up on your boat, you may very well freak out. Look at what happened here. They're rowing with all of their might against waters that are just bashing them again and again, and yet they're trying to power through. No doubt they're afraid, but it says that when they see Jesus, they freak out. They see him walking on the water. People don't walk on water. Notice that the text doesn't say they're freaking out because of the waters. They're freaking out because Jesus is there. And this happens a lot. Remember when St. Peter had this miraculous catch of fish in his nets, his response is, Jesus, get away from me. I'm an evil man. You know, you think about the transfiguration when they see Jesus in glory, shining with the radiance of the Father, and like Moses and Elijah are there, and their first thought is, we need to build a tabernacle. What's a tabernacle? The tabernacle was the nuclear containment device that kept God inside the Holy of Holies because no one can look upon him and live. They're freaking out thinking, we got to contain this thing. We don't know what we're dealing with with Jesus. He is something more than we are used to. The other time Jesus miraculously stilled the waters, it says all the people in the boat were afraid. And so they woke up Jesus. Jesus, don't you care if we die? He said, peace be still. Immediately the storm stopped and all of the kinetic energy on the entire Sea of Galilee was instantaneously dissipated and it became smooth as glass. And then it said they were terrified. And they asked, what manner of man is this? What is this entity that we are dealing with that is not just human? It's like if you imagine, you know, there's uh, actually up on the Great River Road, uh, they just opened in Grafton a sky tour, which is like, uh, you know, it's like a, it's like a, 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 a like a ski lift with gondolas, so you can go up to the winery up on top of the bluff, and you get up there and you can see in the distance, little teeny tiny, 30 miles away, little teeny tiny gateway arch, kind of on its side, and, and downtown Clayton and a little bit of downtown St. Louis way in the distance, 30 miles away. And if you can imagine going up with, you know, a new coworker and you drive the Great River Road and it's really pretty, you got the, you know, the, the Piazza Bird and you got the, you know, Raging Rivers, whatever, and you got the beautiful, you know, uh, beautiful almost like, like rock wall along the Mississippi River and then you get there to, on the far side of, of, of uh, 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 grafted and you take this like cable car up the gondola and you get out you're looking at that little teeny tiny arch and your your new coworker says you know you want to see something cool and he he puts his hands out and he says something in some unknown language and then suddenly the rock wall below you drops another five miles down and you see this giant cavern before you and you are literally on the precipice and the mississippi and missouri rivers are both cascading as five mile tall you know you know uh, 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 
waterfalls down into the canyon below. And you can still see this on the far edge of the precipice, that little gateway arch in downtown Clayton. And you look at your friend and you can see in the, the blacks of his eyes the spiral of the galaxies going around. And then he reaches out his hand, he says something else, and instantly everything is exactly as it was, like nobody noticed anything. And you've got the big question you have to answer is, are you going to call Uber or are you going to get in the car with him? Because when you experience something like that, it freaks you out. And when Jesus gets in your boat, it's going to freak you out. Uh, when Moses approached God at the Exodus, you couldn't even touch the mountain without dying. You know, because you're in the presence of something holy. And Jesus walks up to the boat. They're terrified. They don't know what's going on. They have no control of the situation. And something with infinite power is approaching them toward their boat on the water. It's like sitting down next to a supernova. How do you not get burned? You know, and, and Aslan is not a safe lion. And when you see Jesus and you realize what he is as God, as Logos enfleshed, it can really freak you out. But the thing is, you want him on your boat because he's the only one with the power to get you through to the other side. Only God can calm the storm. Psalm 89, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 107, he stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of sea were hushed. It's the Exodus motif that runs throughout this passage. They got the manna. Now they got the parting of the waters. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel. And he reassures us. Jesus comes up to us at the edge of the boat. We're freaking out. And he says, don't be afraid. It is I. Ego me. I am. Don't be afraid. It's the most frequently repeated command in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yes, I have infinite power. Yes, that is terrifying. No, you cannot control me. But I love you. And I am good. Do not be afraid. It's Jesus. And in verse 21, it says, only then were they willing to let him on to the boat. His gracious, friendly, welcoming self-disclosure. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Aslan is not a safe lion, but he is a good lion. And it's that beauty of Jesus who approaches you in the midst of the wind and the waves and the darkness. His affection, his loyalty, his compassion upon you that enables you not just to let Jesus on your boat because he's the only one who can get you across, but you begin to welcome him on the boat because he loves you. What can get you up on the worst day of your life? What can enable you to humble yourself, to walk into a meeting and face a person that you don't want to face? What can give you the strength not just to die, but the strength to live for Jesus? It's this divine romance of a God who pursues you and loves you and loves us as His people and who is willing to die for us. And friends, that work of salvation is 100% the work of Jesus. It is not a joint venture. Did you notice the double miracle here? Most commentators point out it's either a second miracle or a second half of the same miracle. It says Jesus got on the boat and at once, immediately, they reach the destination. That's an extra two and a half miles. Uh, probably means that somehow they were just immediately transported to the other side. 
Jesus climbs on board, and immediately you are at safe harbor. Uh, in this journey toward heaven, toward glory, to see the face of God, it's Jesus alone who gets us across to the other side. He doesn't. Uh, Jesus doesn't see you in the rough waters and throw you a book on swimming or on rowing. He's not yelling at you saying, row harder, row better, row faster, be more vigorous, power through with more energy. No, he shows up and he gets you there because salvation is all his work. It is all his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. It is his reign for you right now in his second coming in glory when he will make everything right. That is all of grace. He, he, he rose for us that we might live. He is our victor, our deliverer, the eternal Logos, come in the flesh who forgives all your sins. He knows them all. He forgives them completely. He embraces you as his own. It's the gospel that he died to accomplish that. This is the Jesus who wants on the boat with you. And it means, friends, some of you need to stop rowing. You're rowing so hard, trying to prove yourself with your career, trying to project the perfect marriage, trying to be the perfect parent, trying to get it all together, trying to control the world around you. And Jesus is saying, I'm on the boat. You can quit rowing. You don't have to have the perfect career. You don't have to be the perfect mom. You don't have to be the perfect dad. You don't have to have a romantic partner. You don't have to look polished and excellent. You don't have to be smart and witty all the time. The rough waters are awful, but you have Jesus in your boat. It's okay if your marriage is a little bit of a train wreck. The pain will be unimaginable, but Jesus is going to get you through it. Maybe your career is tanking, but Jesus is in your boat. Maybe it's a really horrible diagnosis. But death will not destroy your soul. Jesus will transport you safely to the other side. It's okay if you have psychiatric problems when you've got Jesus in your boat. So you have an addiction. That's that a lot of us do. There are things about a lot of us that will not be healed in this life. And I know that very well, very personally. But Jesus has your back. He's your friend. He's the one who will get you to safe harbor no matter how hard the waves are because he loves you only jesus can do that it's all of grace friends this life is a journey you're going to run into rough waters but you got jesus on your ship he's going to see you through to the other side and on that day when you breathe your last breath you're going to wake up and his promise to you will be true for he says that I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those that love him. You're going to see it, and you're going to realize that you have crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, and now you've come home. Ever since he was a kid, Bob Goff had a dream to sail across the Pacific Ocean. Um, he had a dream. He had to buy a boat, and he didn't bother to really get an instruction manual or anything like that. He had no idea what he was doing, but, but Bob and four of his buddies entered in the Transpac race, which is the semi-annual sailboat race that goes from, from Los Angeles to Honolulu. And uh, with limited sailing skills, he and his friends loaded their 35-foot sailboat with canned chili and bottled water, and they set off into the ocean to Hawaii. And uh, the most moving part of the journey was their arrival at the finish line. Bob describes it this way, he writes this. 
It says, there's a tradition in the Transpac race, no matter when you finish the race, even if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, when you pull into the Ala Moana Marina in Oahu, there's a guy who announces the name of the boat and every crew member who made the trip. And it's the same guy. And he's been announcing each boat's arrival since for, for every Transpac race for, for decades. And just when we came to the end of our supplies, they had zigzagged across the Pacific. They had done everything wrong. They were taking so much longer. It was a disaster. But right as their supplies were running out, they sailed across the, fishing, the, the finish line just off Diamond Head into the marina. And it was a few hours before dawn. It had been 16 days, he says, since we set out from Los Angeles in our little boat, knowing nothing about navigation. And suddenly, the silence was broken by a booming voice over a loudspeaker announcing the name of our tiny boat. And then he started announcing the names of our ragtag crew like he was introducing heads of state. One by one, he announced all of our names with obvious pride in his voice, and it became a really emotional moment for each of us on board. When he came to my name, he didn't talk about how few navigation skills I had or the zigzag course I'd led us in to get us there. He didn't tell everyone I didn't know which way was north or about all my other mess-ups. Instead, he just welcomed me in from the adventure like a proud father would. When he was done, there was a pause. And then, in a sincere voice, his last words to the entire crew were these. Friends, it's been a long journey. Welcome home. Because of the way he said it, we all welled up. We fought back tears. I wiped my eyes as I reflected in that moment about all the uncertainty, the terror, the drama that had come from the journey, all of the sloppy sailing, the darkness, how little I knew, but none of that mattered now because we had completed our race. I've always thought heaven might be kind of a similar experience. After we each cross the finish line in our lives, I imagine it will be like floating into that Hawaiian marina when our names are announced one by one. And at the end of our lives, after our many mistakes and mid-course corrections, our lovingly, heavenly Father will simply say, friends, it's been a long trip, but welcome home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do indeed thank you that you are the one willing to climb into our boat. And you are the one ready to carry us across to the other side because it is all of your grace that we are saved. And so we consecrate to you now the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, that you, our Lord, our gracious King, might minister to us the grace to live as your people on this journey, following you to the other side. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.